0: If you don't know me, I am your interim pastor, Mike Sherrod. On behalf of our church family, I want to welcome any of you visiting with us this morning. We are so grateful that you are here. This is the second part of a little series leading up to Christmas called Awaiting the Savior. Our text this morning is Micah. It's an Old Testament prophet near the end of your Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. the word of the Lord. If your doctor found in you a serious health threat during an annual checkup, would you want her to tell you about it? Of course, you want the truth. You would not want your doctor to sugarcoat it, minimize it or slough it off. The prophets of God's people are called to tell God's people the truth. But in 700 B.C., in Jerusalem and its environs, the prophets of God did not do that. They minimized the gravity of sin, no worries, boys will be boys, God will forgive. As long as you go to church, everything's okay, except the prophet Micah. He's telling the truth. Seven chapters of truth in this Old Testament book that we have, likely a series of sermons he would preached over a number of years compiled into one book. What is it in an overarching sense that he wants you to know? It is this. There are only two kinds of people in the world, essentially, and in this room. There are the presumptuous and the penitent. Only two kinds of people. The presumptuous are taking their sin very lightly. The sense of God's holiness is distant from them at best. And they're leaving themselves to the judgment of God. The penitent are seriously and gravely aware of their sin. They're dying for forgiveness. They are desperate for grace. Their sin is deeply troubling to them. They know it is an offense to God. They hunger for grace to cover their sin. And Micah shows us the only source in the universe for that grace. It's Jesus Christ. Micah tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in the sermon this morning are two glorious truths about the Lord Jesus that come from the hand of a man who wrote 700 years before he was born. Number one, Jesus is the undeserved shepherd king that God delights to give us. Judah and Samaria and Jerusalem were a terrible place to live for Joe Average in that time, for the middle class. Their priests, their religious leaders, their political leaders were corrupt, they were proud, and they were greedy, and they had reduced the middle class to severe poverty by their lust for their wealth, all the while maintaining this outward form of being religious. And it gave their leaders a false sense of spiritual security. So it's in light of that that Micah does what he has to do. He preaches judgment. The Assyrians are coming to exile many of you Israelites as an act of God's judgment on this unrepentant sin, this arrogance, this disregard for the people, this pride. And so verse 1 then is an allusion to the Assyrians coming in and actually striking the king of Israel right there in Jerusalem. Now muster your troops, our daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And it's against this background of judgment that Micah foresees a ruler who will come in the future who ironically will be born among the least of the towns of Judah, not even named when you name all the towns. It's like he's from Free Union. (laughs) Where? Free Union. (laughs) And stunningly, his existence precedes his birth. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, the word means fruitful. How fruitful could a city be that gives us the Savior of the world? who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. The New Testament tells us this ruler is Jesus Christ. He's God's gift to you for salvation, for righteousness, for those who undeservingly of this grace Repent of their sins. So that raises what question in your mind? What would move anyone to quick, hearty, earnest, deep repentance over their sins? What would move you to repentance? Seeing, tasting, experiencing the heinousness of your sin. I don't want you to think of sin as simply breaking the rules or not keeping the rules. There's a more organic reason why people fail to give God the obedience He deserves, and that is this. They are relatively unconcerned or callous and indifferent to the Lord's loveliness. Because when you see the Lord's loveliness, you want to imitate it not sin. And this indifference to the glory of the person of God being smitten, being in awe, being in wonder, being captivated by God's glory, it issues in a heart that expresses itself in rebellion against His rule. Essentially this attitude. Keep your grubby hands off my life. That's what sin does so Awfully to a human heart and so we live for ourselves we're autonomous we want no one telling us what to do not least God why is sin so awful it's poison it's throwing poison in the face of God when you sin you're drinking poison for your soul when I don't love my neighbors myself I'm casting poison upon their being Sin, self-indulgence now. God has to judge it. Just as you wouldn't tolerate any amount of toxic waste in your kitchen, you'd have it removed as fast as you could, there'll never be any sin in the presence of God. It's poison. You see, God wants you to enjoy him and yourself perfectly and you can never do that enjoying sin at the same time now there's an implicit danger brought up by the religious situation in Israel at the time and that is you can be religious you can go to church you can give to the mercy fund next week at lessons and carols you can pray you can do all keep yourself out of trouble You can be religious and still be far from God. One of the things the prophets had to say to the religious was, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. God is intensely interested in your heart, your soul, your being. Notice how, Micah 6, 6, there we go, notice how Micah portrays our complete inability to give God uh, what, we, what we owe him through religious efforts. Look at Micah 6.6. 6. He raises this question. Students, you may get a lot of questions in the next couple weeks on your exam. There is no more important question in your entire life than you answer this one. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Right? That is the question of questions. What do I need in my hands to make a claim on the presence of God? That's the question. All of us must answer that. So he teases out a couple possibilities. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Next question. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Can you imagine how much oil that is? 10,000s of rivers of oil. In other words, all the wealth you could imagine. Shall I give, and now it gets even more intense, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my soul? You can't give God anything to atone for your sin. He has to give you something. He gave his firstborn, Jesus Christ. For your salvation because you have nothing in your hands you bring simply to his cross you cling. Do you see how God says how profoundly he takes seriously the, the, the gravity of sin? He gave a son to die the death your sins deserve. He didn't withhold him. What an act of irrepressible, immeasurable mercy God giving Jesus for you because you don't have what it takes. Now you get a hint of this magnificent grace at the very end of Micah, Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is like God who pardons iniquity, passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? That's you, that's you, you who repent. That's you, pardons your iniquity. He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. Beloved, there's not an ounce of grudge in the soul of God when it comes to delighting to forgive you. There's nothing holding him back. His impulse is to give you mercy. His impulse is to love you, to forgive you. There's not a moment of hesitation when you repent. He's there giving you salvation in Jesus. He delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. What? It means, beloved, the moment you trust Jesus for your salvation, He removes your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, He removes all of them into His body on the cross such that it's as if all of them were cast into the sea. You'll never see them again. Doesn't God put up a fishing sign that says no fishing when He puts all your sins in the depths of the sea? So the only way our God can tread our sins under his feet, is giving Jesus to the cross for your salvation. I'll close this section with um, With a question. Are you tasting, day in and day out, the love of Jesus for you? Tony, Tony alluded to it she, in her prayer. She prayed we would taste the Lord's love. One of my favorite theologians, a British man from a couple hundred years ago named Thomas Watson, said this Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Some of you find unspeakable sweetness in the death and love of Christ for you, it's because your sin's bitter. My desire for the rest of you is that you might know the sweetness of the love of Christ. Your sin would become increasingly bitter and you repent and find the Savior who runs to the repentant to assure them of His love. Micah is telling us two things about Jesus. He is the undeserved Shepherd king for you. Secondly, Jesus is the expected shepherd king. He's the expected shepherd king. In Matthew 2, we we hear about the Magi coming from the east. Herod wants to know, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, they know the scriptures. And they annex the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem based on our text, Micah 5. Matthew 2 reads, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Magi are telling Herod, we expected this. It was written. It was promised. In a sense, if you all were Joe and Julie Israelite, living Hundreds, uh, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, you would live decade after decade with an anticipation, a wondering, a questioning. Uh, could it be that our king, the king we have now, is he the one, God has promised, that will come and shepherd us perfectly? And the answer would be in every instance, he's not that king until Jesus. Here he is. And look at the way verse 4 unpacks for you the glory of our Jesus shepherd king. It says he will shepherd my people Israel. If you did a word study of the word shepherd in the Old Testament, you'd see how often This idea of kingship and shepherding were conjoined. The king was to care for rule over the people in the same way a shepherd would care for the sheep. Jesse did a lovely job preaching on that last week. So this is expected that Jesus would be the born king of the angels as well as the shepherd of God's people. That's how he annexes his own ministry in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. He says that long expected shepherd, it's me. And he didn't come to reign in quite the way that people wanted. But he established a reign, as we'll see, far superior in glory and quality. He will shepherd my people. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, he Binds up our wounds. He finds the lost. He protects and provides for his own. You know this as you pray to him. As you're involved in one another's lives and community and you're encouraging one another. And what do you need? How can I pray for you? How can I bless you? How are we conjoined together in this wonderful ministry of this church? Jesus using you together to spread the fame of his name. It says, he will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. This idea of standing conveys authority and power. How did Jesus shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord? Well, he was anointed with the Spirit of God. And it was manifested as he raised the dead. Healed the sick, fed the hungry, changed human hearts, cast out demons, said to the sea and the wind, stop and stopped. There's no authority ever been exercised in human history like that. The king is here. He rules everything. Sorry, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Makes you want to break out and sing that 70s song, Majesty Worship. Yeah. What he's saying is. That when you see Jesus, you see the holiness of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. There's the glory of God in Jesus, the majesty of the Father. So no wonder. He speaks of his accomplishment as this. They shall dwell secure for now. Is it the next verse? Do I have that in there for you? They shall, now he will be great to the ends of the earth and they, he shall be their peace. I don't know about you, but I long for security for my soul, and I'm painfully aware that I can find a false security in my bank account, my reputation, and the affirmation of other people. Those tend to fill me with a sense of security. The reality is, I have no security apart from being united to Jesus Christ by faith. My soul is as safe as Jesus is right now at the right hand of his Father in heaven. If Jesus is safe there, he is, so am I. And so are all who repent and trust in this Jesus. And his fame, beloved, since uh, he made these Uh, He embraced these, fulfilled these promises 2,000 years ago. His fame has indeed spread to the ends of the earth. We're still trying to take it to the ends of the earth through our missions. And there's not a square inch of planet earth that Jesus Christ doesn't say, Mine. He is great. He is the famous one. And then he says, He shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. In Christ, we receive far better peace than the kinds of things, and they're good things that we long for. I don't think many of you woke up this morning worried that our borders would be invaded by a foreign army. I don't think anybody woke up this morning worried about that, unless you happen to be in some sort of technology, you know, foreign service, secret stuff. And that's a good thing. But it is far better that because you have Jesus... You will have peace forever in borderless eternity. The new heavens and the new earth are yours in Christ, where the shalom of God you will experience and never know an ounce of sin, suffering, sadness, death, alienation. There'll be none of that. There's no human ruler who could even promise to give you that. And it's one thing, beloved, for, an, for, a, for a king to defeat your national enemies. That is a good thing. It's another to have a king who can conquer your alienation from God. He is our peace, means that through the blood of his cross, we have peace with God. Beloved, you woke up this morning, if you knew Jesus and you've repented from your sins and you trust him, God's at peace with you. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to lose. Some of you are striving, trying to prove your worth to God. You're free. Your worth is in heaven. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ brings us a peace where he conquers our alienation from God, he conquers the grave, he conquers the devil. He conquers the uncertainty of your future. Every one of your days, He already knows. He's already written the script for your life. Walk in faith that He's got you. And He conquers the hardness of our hearts that we'll struggle with to the day we die. See, when Jesus sees your sin, this heinousness, this ugliness, this self-will, this reluctance, the kinds of things we confessed earlier in the service, when He sees that, his impulse is to come in to your weakness, not despise it, to come into it. Because he exercises his glorious power by becoming weak on the cross in your place. He earned the right to deal with your sin in your heart by cleansing you and dying, dying for you. You're going to catch the place on fire. That, that is a deacon indeed, right there. Thank you. So that's, that's a great segue to my last, my last point. <laughs> what does it look like when the love of Jesus rules that heart? What's it look like? It looks like Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love, kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Who is that? That's Jesus. That's what Jesus did flawlessly for 33 years. And His Father rewarded Him with an eternal reign of glory through the suffering of His cross. That's Jesus. You're never going to do that in this lifetime because you're going to battle sin as you seek to do that. However, When the love of Jesus is filling your heart, you will sense power, an impulse, a movement towards justice. That's walking out God's laws. Showing kindness, that is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And walking humbly with your God. That is standing in awe of the greatness of God, wondering how could he save someone like me, and yet you have filled me with your power that I might put my eyes on other people and serve their needs ahead of my own, walking humbly before God. Do you see? The love of Christ constraining you will bring that to pass. And the good physician, the great physician, Jesus... Will do that for you, in you, because he loves everyone around you and he wants to bless them through you. So come, shepherd, king, do these things for your glory. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their interest in the word of God. Thank you for their appetite for your grace. Would we ever hunger more and more for the reign of this loving shepherd king in our hearts, producing by his grace and power, walking in obedience, loving others, and serving humbly our gracious, great, glorious, unspeakably desirable God. In Jesus' name, amen.